Welcome to the Swampflex Podcast. My name is Brandon Day. Hi, I'm Allie. And I am Boomer. And we are three friends and meet over the internet to discuss feature films. We also write for the movie review website, swampflex.com, where I got a great note from a bot, I believe, who reads our website, commented on a review of the 1997 film Good Burger that I wrote seven years ago. Nice, nice. Uh, this comment is from uh, June 27th, 2023, which will become relevant as I read it. I want Good Burger to do a series for the first time. I want Good Burger to do a solo series for the first time. I want Good Burger to have a solo series for the first time. I want Good Burger series to be announced on June 27th, 2023. I want Good Burger Greenlight a series on June 27th, 2023. <laughs> I'm not sure who we write for, except for the bots. And I do love that they're now sending poetry back to us in appreciation. This is really beautiful stuff. Yeah, what great fan mail. <laughs> you know, uh, good for them. I'm glad that they enjoy it. If it does end up happening that bots end up creating all of the entertainment, it's good to know that we were ahead of the curve creating entertainment. Right, right. Bots. Well, I mean, they they embrace us as one of them is is what's good to know. We need to make ourselves useful by entertaining them. Yeah, I think is the only way out of this. I was gonna say they're still gonna let us do our thing even when they take over, so long as we keep writing about Good Burger. What AI generated content have y'all been watching since we last talked? So, um, I want there to be announced um, a Good Burger series in July 27th, 2023. <laughs> it was you! <laughs> no, um, so I did a rewatch of the 1990 It miniseries recently. Oh, wow. That's a commitment. It was, but, you know, anything for Tim Curry, right? He's just so good in it. I mean, we all know the story of it by now right like demon who feeds off of fear basically starts killing i'm sorry what is this it that you're talking about the stephen king it you know uh stephen whom yeah yeah he's (laughs) yeah has he written anything else of no he's he's been crowned king oh yes i i recall him from uh rose red yes rose red and the langoliers yeah. <laughs> oh, the Green Mile guy. Yeah. Yeah. Right, 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 right. You know what what's not a forgotten classic? The Tommy Knockers. But we don't have to go <laughs> down that road. Not tonight. Yeah. Anyway, I just uh I appreciate that miniseries. You know, 90s miniseries are such a mood. Just they have this thing going on in them and you're just like nothing feels like this anymore that's true i'm kind of sad about it though because i I kind of like it it's like weird and stilted but also kind of soap opera-y but then you know this one i found like a lot of the effects were really great lots of good stop motion stuff going on that i had totally forgotten about even though there's some scenes that i remember like scarring me for life as like a seven-year-old where i was like oh this is why i did not want to take a shower for like months you know stuff like that i can confirm from recently watching two movies for lifetime where denise richards plays a cheerleader's mom oh yeah that they are still making this stuff but yeah the funding for the effects and the star power and the two-night event sprawl is definitely gone like the golden age of that stuff being funded uh, at least on the level of like a direct-to-video movie, is definitely not around anymore, unless you count the like straight-to-HBO streaming stuff. Mm-hmm. 
yeah. even those seem even cheaper compared to what it was yeah and what they do is they just expand them out now into like limited series that are not like a two night event exactly. it's like a it's the stand for eight hours yes instead. it's like seven episodes of this thing and i don't know like that's fine and i'm glad they give room for source material to breathe but there's just something about that 90s miniseries vibe that Maybe it's just nostalgia making me put on rosy colored glasses, but I I love them. You're you're braver than I am because I tried to watch the actual Stephen King, uh, The Shining miniseries maybe like oh, six months I ago. I watched that one ever, so I, I've left the folder open. Like I'm gonna click back in there, mm-hmm. you know, and finish it for six months now, and I I don't think that I'm going to, and I think it's time to admit it to myself and to the world. Yeah. The king himself says it's better than the Kubrick. So well, I know he does. I know well, he does. It's because he made it. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> because, yeah, he made it. And, like, as cinematic as his books feel, I don't know about him being that involved in productions. Like, I guess, you know, he was heavily involved in most of his miniseries. But I know with The Shining, he just, like, had this huge old bone to pick. Yeah, I mean, I I understand that the way that the film differed from his vision got caught in his craw. Yeah. As someone who, you know, would feel the same way if it was so changed from something that I had written. But I would like to think that I would have the humility to be like, I recognize that this has become a classic in its own right, even if it's not very much like what I created. But yeah, King wouldn't let that one go. and. I understand the the concept of having like Steven Weber as like a um, more normal guy who completely loses his mind over the course of the winter, but it's just not, it just never really feels that threatening. And the CGI effects are so much less effective than like, you know, very simple bloody elevator, you know, girls in the hallway kind of stuff. Yeah. It's like one of those things where, you know, I've read the book, I've seen the movie, I've not seen the miniseries, but... I like a lot of the changes that Kubert made. Like the hedge maze versus the topiary. Because in the book, there's the topiary that comes to life. Like in a movie, that would just look goofy. Yeah. And it does. Oh, okay. They do the the topiary. Okay. Yeah. And the the CGI of it is, um, it's uh, aged like, I, I don't know, not even milk. Like it's aged worse than milk. They had the Tommenknockers team working on it. Did it? I don't know. Probably. (laughs) (laughs) No clue. So I also, uh, Boomer, finally started watching Strange New Worlds. Oh, yes. Ring the bell and ring it. Ring Uh, one one for land and two for sea. Yeah, yeah. It's great. I'm really enjoying it. Are you caught up or are you in season one? It's still in season one. Wonderful. I envy you the journey that you have ahead. Yeah, I'm I'm really, really enjoying it. To discover for the first time. And I I like that they're kind of back to doing an episodic thing. Yeah, they're they're basically speed running like a bunch of original series style plots and it's wonderful. Yes. I like that they're embracing the soft sciences uh a lot with the Uhura plots and making her being a linguist really important. And I love that. I love it because there's so much, um, you know, with the anthropology and stuff that I feel like Star Trek in a lot of series just kind, kind of glosses ignores. over. Yeah. yeah. So I'm all about it when Star Trek embraces the, the soft sciences and humanities. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we're important in space. Deal with it. Anyway, uh, Boomer, 
now that we're you know on a trek adventure what have you been watching well uh i also um have been watching uh strange new worlds as well but i'm a season ahead of you so i, I can't talk about what i've been watching there i yeah. will say um i watched a horror movie called there's something wrong with the children uh which i did a pretty extensive write-up on that turned into a rant about people not paying attention during movies <laughs> That's a good title, though. You really went in on the children, like the real world children. I, I did. But you know what? It's not just them. And, you know, it's it's not just a generational thing, because I've noticed this also just with like my parents generation. I'll be sitting there trying to watch a movie with them and their brains have also been like spoiled where they just have their phone in their hand the whole time. And people, of course, of my own generation, who are the ones that I'm the most annoyed with on a day to day level. But it's a it's a pretty fun little uh, indie horror that I guess went straight to MGM plus or was available for rental, uh, apparently for $7 because there were a lot of like people who didn't enjoy it. And I assume didn't enjoy it because they weren't paying attention or I don't know. There's a lot of like, Oh, the plot doesn't make sense. And I'm like, the plot makes, you know, it might start from a place where there's like a supernatural element, but that doesn't mean the plot doesn't make sense. It's really being torn apart by like the worst level of, like, why didn't the Eagles just take the Hobbits to Mordor type film commentary where it's like, then then that's, they could have, but then then there's not a story. Like, you understand that, like, you know, uh, a narrative and plot and art is not about speed running through a plot. It's not winning a game. It's not a race. You know, it's it's enjoying the narrative or not enjoying it, as the case often is, but on its own merits, not based on something else. So... Um, if you want my thoughts on the movie itself, I guess go read my review. And if you want a more extended thought, uh, version of that explanation, that's also there. I also watched a 1974 film uh, that I assume is famous. And I, I know is famous within like film circles, but I don't know how well known it is outside of like our little insular community. But Alice doesn't live here anymore. Seems like the Scorsese that nobody ever talks about. There are a few, yeah. but uh, that one definitely, I guess because it has a female lead, you know, doesn't get the dorm room poster treatment that like film bros give like Goodfellas and Casino for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it had the sitcom spinoff Alice that ran for nine seasons. Like that's a very different kind of legacy, but it does have a legacy, I guess, which is interesting enough. Have either of you seen it? I have not. I have not either, actually. And, you know, I generally, like, not to sound like a film bro, but I generally enjoy Scorsese. Like, I love Scorsese. I love Goodfellas, even though I just shat on it. I was going to (laughs) say, I I like Goodfellas as well. Like, I think he's great. I like him being a grumpy old man about the Marvel movies. I'm just like, please, he's Grandpa Marty. Yeah. That one, Age of Innocence and After Hours are all huge blind spots for me. Well, I, I'm going to go ahead and give it like a big thumbs up from me. It's on Criterion, like a lot of the things that we've been discussing lately. Um, it's Ellen Burstyn as, you know, a woman who loses her husband, who was in and of himself, he was an abusive asshole. So it's like not that great a loss, you would hope, but like it does leave her basically destitute. So she and her 11-year-old son set out on this journey to try and get back to the place where she grew up and was at one time a lounge singer in the hopes of getting that job back, even though she's like probably past her prime. And so it's broken up into this series of vignettes, you know, of like her in one place and then her in another. And then, 
you know, kind of the setting of the diner becomes the like place where the large part of the last act takes place. Um, and of course, that's the part that was made into the television show. It's got some really great performances. Harvey Keitel, he is so young and like baby faced in this one that when you first meet him, you're like, wow, he's playing against type, you know, the type that we think of him as so well. He looks like a young, handsome, like charismatic man. And then, of course, that uh, uh, he turns on the Harvey Keitel in a way that is genuinely one of the scariest things that I've ever seen in a movie. Like I was, <laughs> it was intense and I loved it. Um, there's also, you know, this really fascinating relationship between Alice and her son that I really enjoyed where, you know, his father was so hard nosed and didn't understand him at all. And even though Alice clearly doesn't understand Tommy super well either, you know, uh, he's kind of becomes a stranger to her, even though they're sharing these hotel rooms because she's gone all day trying to find work and he just becomes completely engrossed in like the television, just watching daytime television at the hotel all day for an entire summer. And it drives this child to being so annoying, even though he was pretty annoying already. And I really enjoyed uh, that level of unsentimentality about children. You know, it's something that I really enjoyed in the Coen Brothers movies as well. Like, he, uh, you know, there's a point in this movie where Tommy is trying to tell this joke to his mother. And he tells it to her over and over again. And it's the kind of joke that a child thinks is very funny, but there's not actually a joke there. There's not a pun. There's not a turn of phrase. There's, or, or it's like a, when a child misunderstands what parts of a joke they overheard they need to retain and then recite. And he just tells it to her over and over and over again <laughs> for like a couple of minutes. And he, she doesn't laugh. And he's like, you didn't laugh. Did you get it? And she's like, yes, I got it. And he's like, then tell me what it, what it meant. And then she can't because there's no point to get. And it drives her to the brink of madness. And it's a very funny scene. I, uh, I really, really enjoyed this one. It's very long. And it's a little bit of a slog because things go so badly for her over and over again for so long. But it is my type of movie. It is a woman on the verge movie, probably like a really archetypical one or archetypal one rather um, that I guess was a blind spot for me because this is kind of like genre defining. This is like really a woman on the edge, um, like really, really enjoyed uh, her performance. Uh, Chris Christopherson is great in it. Diana Ladd is really wonderful as like the lead waitress who has kind of been like too big for this podant town forever but she found her calling as being like you know this like community center uh or being part of this community centerpiece uh really really good i really enjoyed that one uh, and i give it a big recommendation and then uh the last thing that i saw most recently uh was asteroid city wes anderson's new movie uh, and I really look forward to the next time that we record after um, Brandon has seen it uh, so that we can really get into it. But I really, really enjoyed it. It was beautiful. It was fun. It kind of felt to me like uh, Synecdoche, New York done properly. Like if you were to plug in like Wes Anderson, Synecdoche, New York into like an AI, uh, you wouldn't get this because that this is a piece of art. <laughs> but it comes close. So that's the second comparison point to that film this year after Bo is Afraid, then. Yeah. Yeah. We're all in our synecdoche era as, as filmmakers, I guess. <laughs> We've all spent too much time inside. Yeah. Uh, uh, this one, 
I'm not well, really sure when this was false. filmed either, because Sophia Lilly, who was in It, which I guess I'm revealing that, yeah, that was the joke. We all know It. Um, she was in the most recent uh, It as Beverly. She looks younger in this than I than she looked in things that I've seen within the past year or two that she was in. So this one seems like it might have been filming for a really long time um, because of uh, quarantine. And it feels very much like a, you know, an interaction with quarantine because they're, you know, they are eventually siloed off in this town in the movie for uh, reasons that I won't get into because I don't want to spoil anything. But yeah, big recommend from me on that one. Can I ask you as an editor who has not seen this movie and hasn't read much about it because I'm going to go watch it? Uh, was my choice of doodle at least apt to illustrate some part of the theme of the film? Because I had no idea what to use for this one. I went with like a retro UFO. Yes. Look. Okay, good. Yes. I was pulling basically from vague vibes because I'm trying not to learn too much about it before I see it. You got the vibe. Um Great, buddy. I need the reassurance every now and then. Yeah, yeah. I really love that the same raccoon doodle is on Guardians of the Galaxy 3 <laughs> and Dario Argento's Pelts. I love that raccoon. I'll have you know that uh, the one for Pelts has jazz hands that I removed for the Guardians one, and I also tried to make him look sadder. If you uh, look at them side by side, I, I doctored it a little bit <laughs> to bum him out. Love it. I love it. And to match the fur pattern of Rocket Raccoon. Oh, okay. All right. I'm a, I'm a pretty lazy artist, but I still consider myself one, you know? Yeah, you know what? You're going the distance. I think you've got what it <laughs> takes, kid. <laughs> Gotta keep the bots happy. Yeah, yeah. What, what have you been watching? I got three new releases from 2023 that I could discuss. I'll go in the order of how much I liked them. Uh, one was called Oink, which is a Dutch stop-motion animated film. And it's very cute. Supposedly, it's the first full-length feature film stop motion from the Netherlands. I don't know how you verify something like that. It sounds impossible, but that's what the ad copy says. It actually reminded me a lot of the first stop motion film from Estonia called The Old Man Movie that uh, I believe finally hit the U.S. last year. And in that one, there's a lot of poop jokes about farm animals, uh, particularly this cow that escapes from a farm. The animation is much cruder in the Estonian one and not as cute. This one looks more like uh, My Life as a Zucchini. You know, giant Hey Arnold-style heads on these, like, cute little human figures. Uh, lots of, like, cotton ball texture added to stuff. So it's very adorable visually, and it's got a lot of humor. Uh, it's about this little pig that this little girl adopts. The pig is called Oink, which is where the title comes from. And it's a very rambunctious little piglet that runs around and makes a mess out of her family's house and garden. Uh, and her family is like very uptight, so they want to get rid of the pig. But uh, her grandfather from America has come and encouraged this new pet because he wants to cook and eat it for a sausage competition. King Sausage he wants to become in a few weeks. <laughs> and... The pig running around pooping on everything and like causing a lot of chaos in this like tightly controlled environment. Very funny. But like the entire movie and every line of dialogue and every event that happens is all in service of basically vegetarian propaganda, which is like a good cause for the most part. Like nice. it's just saying like, you know, meat consumption is bad for the planet and bad for these animals. 
and uh, that's fine. Like I, I wasn't really particularly like against what it was saying, except at the end when they said that vegetarian sausage tastes better than like real meat sausage. Like get the fuck out of here with that. That's just a lie. But the overall like propaganda aspect of it just limits how morally complicated it can be and like how deep any of the characters can be in any way. Like you can't really care about anything that's happening because it's all so didactic. And the whole movie's like really only useful if you're showing it to a child to explain vegetarian values to them which i don't know i'm an adult i've weighed out the like moral gray area of eating meat sometimes uh myself you know it's not as cut and dry of an issue as as it's portrayed in the film and because it is so cut and dry there's just like really nowhere for the story to go and i don't know it just felt kind of like flat by the end and this is coming from a real stop motion nerd like i I really loved the way it looked and uh it just wasn't much of anything ultimately I also watched the movie 65 starring Adam Driver. Oh my. Which you might remember the ads from earlier this year. And just the ads. Yeah. <laughs> it uh it's actually hitting Netflix this week, but my library got me a DVD copy. It's fine. I it got a lot of very negative reviews and I thought they were kind of harsh for something that's not particularly offensive or dumb. It is a dumb movie, but it's dumb in a way that felt kind of routine for direct-to-video style action films. It just happens to have a movie star in it, so more eyes were on it. It is written and directed by the screenwriters behind A Quiet Place. And I think these guys oh. might be real dum-dums. They are. <laughs> I mean, I did not like A Quiet Place. I'm just gonna be straight up about that. I thought it was okay. It's, like, a little dry, but, like, the creature was interesting, at least. Yeah, like, I got to the point where I just felt like I was the only one that did not like it. Um, <laughs> so I'm just going to be like, yes, they're not as smart as people wanted them to be after watching A Quiet Place. I mean, I, I stopped watching it after a certain point because I was just like, this is so like weird and misogynistic and dumb. Yeah, the pregnancy stuff in that movie is particularly weird. Yeah, so I had to, I had to stop. I had to stop. So I think these people met when they were children. And I think they've been, like, workshopping ideas for movies since they were, like, in middle school. And now they're getting funding for these ideas that are, like, decades old and um, feels like little kids smashing toys together. And I don't think they realize how goofy the ideas are. Like, they're really committing to this, like, hard sci-fi feel on these really preposterous premises. Uh, In 65, Adam Driver plays an alien from a distant planet where everyone looks... And talks and acts like human beings. This is 65 million years ago. And he inevitably crash lands on planet Earth. Where he has to shoot a laser gun at dinosaurs. Like he's got a ray gun in his hand. uh, And he has to protect this little girl. uh, Who also survives the crash. From dinosaurs and dino adjacent creatures. Like they really fudge the science on what counts as a dinosaur in this. And as soon as he crash lands. He's talking to a computer program that runs the ship. And he takes off his helmet and says, the air is breathable, which really put me in the mindset of like MST3K style sci-fi films, like really simple, like bar napkin premises that are sort of played completely straight, but have a goofy feel to them just because of the commitment to the bit. Like if this movie was trying to do a pastiche of 50s sci-fi with like a lot of snark about like, can you believe what's happening right now? Like, 
mm-hmm. oh wow the dinosaurs fly now like it would have been really unbearable but because the movie thinks it's smarter than it is it kind of felt like a throwback to that era the problem is that it's like 90 something minutes long those 50s drive-in atomic age sci-fi films are like an hour maybe an hour and 10 minutes usually yeah <laughs> so it's not until 40 minutes in the movie that he shoots a laser beam at a dinosaur which is a huge problem that is well yeah the second half's a lot more fun than the first one does it take place in the same cinematic universe as after earth is that the Shyamalan movie yes with uh the smith gentleman i have not seen that i haven't either uh, so. it's, it's very similar it's like an apocalypse where this guy's acting like a dad to someone who's not actually his child the things that kind of illuminated for me were like how much better in some ways the 50s were at making these kind of movies because in the roger corman era you'd be cranking these out and you wouldn't have to explain anything like it would just be a guy on a spaceship who you know lands on this planet earth you know kisses a hot alien babe that looks just like him but has gills or antenna or something and then like shoots the lasers of the dinosaurs maybe there's a last minute twist that all he really did was time travel and didn't actually go to a different planet and uh you know it would be over to make room for the next movie on the double bill and in this one there's like so much explaining like they're really trying to push aside questions about where he's from and his motivations and like trying to like hedge their bets when it comes to like people decrying plot holes on shit that just like doesn't matter. There's this whole subplot about his daughter back on his home planet that is ill. And like that gives him motivation to take care of another little girl when it would be like just natural that he would take care of the only other younger person that survived a crash with him. Like we don't really need a reason for him to feel fatherly to her. Yeah, I get that. So yeah, just a lot of wasted time. But uh, when, he's, when he's actually shooting laser beams at dinosaurs, it felt like a nice, comfortable dad movie you'd watch in the afternoon on a, whatever action channel people fall asleep to these days. Uh, part of it was also filmed in Louisiana, too. So there's a lot of like swamps oh. uh, that the dinosaurs are trekking in. Yeah, I, um, kind of fun. I had a friend who worked on that one. And in one of those like, you know, things where you uh, never really know what the final product is going to look like. When I saw him back in like December, whenever I was home for Christmas and we had lunch, he he was like, yeah, I'm pretty proud of the work on this one. And then when it came out, he was like, no. So <laughs> just a reminder, you know, not everybody who's on the set knows how it's going to turn out. Most people uh, are there yeah. doing the best they can. <laughs> hey, the action stuff, like the creature feature stuff looks pretty decent to me. And I had a fun time watching the action. I just think the screenwriters might be real dum-dums and not aware of how silly the movies that they're making are, which both works for them in like not tipping it into like Deadpool irony and works against them in like how seriously they want the audience to take like the sort of like expositional prologue, which just drags on and on. And like, who cares? Just show me Adam driver shooting ray guns at dino creatures. Like it's, it's not that complicated. Uh, Speaking of a movie that I thought was, neat visually but um the screenwriting didn't really work for me that much was uh i finally caught up with spider-man across the spider-verse as well oh yes what did you think okay so the one in 2018 really did feel like a breakthrough in cg animation like everything's looked like that smoothed edges hyper real natural backdrops style that pixar has like made an industry standard for so long 
that like seeing something that emulated like the off register printing of comic books, cut the screen into little panels, had those like Bende dots, you know, like there was a lot of innovation in how modern computer animation can be inventive and fun. Yeah. And not just all look like frozen. Right. That movie was like outright psychedelic in how yeah. far it like broke away from the industry standard of doing things. And like the new one does all that stuff again, but it's been what four or five years. So it can't help just f- feeling like more of the same. Mm-hmm. And it's like still delicious, but you know, not mind blowing the way that like, you know, like when you have like a really good sandwich or a really good bowl of ice cream, and then you go back to the same place the second time and it's like still really good, but not like expanding your brain in any way. Like you're not like having the same novel experience you had the first time. Yeah. I really enjoyed looking at this artwork again. It really is in a year when so much stuff is routine animation, routine superhero media, and there's really not much else going on out there. It was nice that one of these like corporate crowd pleasers actually has like a visual art to it because, you know, this is supposed to be the art of the moving image in the first place and not just like pure business IP brand extension. And this one actually does the art part sincerely and full dedication. The story it tells is very much filler to me. Like, I don't really care about the characters or what's happening in it very much. If anything, the story of this one is like in the first movie, Miles Morales has his like origin story and these other Spider-Men from across the multiverse, speaking of something that's been done to death, crash into his world and start telling their origin stories uh, as well. And the movie keeps resetting, telling the story of Spider-Man over and over again. And in Across the Spider-Verse, he leaves his little reality bubble and goes into this interdimensional space where all the Spider-Men are hanging out of this like headquarters. And what they're trying to do is make sure that his story is as boring and familiar as possible. Like They want him to suffer the dying uncle scenario from the original Spider-Man comics and the dying girlfriend tragedy. Like they want him to go through the stations of the Canon and, you know, make this just a a normal Spider-Man story to keep the multiverse together. Cause apparently if he doesn't mourn that kind of loss, it'll all fall apart. And even though they're playing with like that expectation and that routine, like it still feels like more of the same and just feels like, you know, stuff I've seen before except that it's so visually exciting that like, even though I was not paying that close attention to what was happening or what the characters were feeling moment to moment, I would still well up with emotion during some of the bigger, more extravagant scenes because it was just so beautiful. I just couldn't help wishing that maybe that technology and that technique was used for a new idea instead of something I've seen so many times before. And maybe that, you know, this movie's made a ton of money it's kind of proven that people will sit through something this psychedelic and, you know, strobe lighty that like it can be applied to something a little more adventurous than like so far they've had like a Shrek sequel that had that look to it. Uh, and they had the Mitchells versus the machines, which was pretty good, but kind of felt like a Pixar style story with this visual layer on top of it. I feel like there's way more out there personal weirdo art to be made with this new CGI style instead of me having to watch the Spider-Man story again and again and again. 
Mm-hmm. One of the most often adapted superheroes, right alongside Batman, for sure. Yeah, he has the third most famous origin story. After Batman at number two and Jesus Christ at number one. <laughs> <laughs> Superman's really been downgraded in the past 20 years, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, Smallville did some damage. <laughs> yeah. Now, ooh, wonderful first word. Right at the beginning of the play. Now. Not in the past. Not a history play. Now. So what's going to happen now? Now is the winter of our discontent. Made glorious summer. Now is the winter of our discontent. Well, we've been having a terrible time in England. The discontent has led to civil wars. And... And Richard is suggesting that feels like winter, you know, when everything's rather uncomfortable. But now it's glorious summer because the sun has come out. For this week's podcast, I had the rest of the crew watch Edward II. No, I'm just kidding. We watched Richard III (laughs) so that we could finally put this confusion uh, to bed. Uh, This is a 1992 film. Is it 92? 95. 95. 95 film in which Ian McKellen plays Richard III in um, sort of modern updating of the Shakespeare play of the same name, in which Richard III is like a scheming hunchback who um, basically goes about killing all of his relatives so that he can ascend to the throne, all while making snarky asides to the audience. And this updates it so that uh, Richard III is played by um, Ian McKellen with like a single lame arm, and, you know, uh, kind of a little bit of a, a haunch on, on one shoulder. Uh, and he makes witty little asides to the audience all throughout the movie uh, in the place of the soliloquies from the play. Uh, and I found it very funny. Um, it's often uh, it, uh, in the first folio, it's marked as one of the history plays. But we also generally consider it to be in many ways one of the tragic plays as well. Uh, Because it is a pretty tragic story in which, you know, this like English king who was mythologized as being somehow monstrous as part of his ongoing like killing of other members of the royal family in order to ascend for him to also then meet his own untimely end. It's like a it's like a kind of an action play almost. Yeah, there's a lot of guns. Yeah, there's well, there's a lot of guns in this adaptation for sure. And this is updated to be set in the rise of fascism of the 1930s. So there's a lot of uh, fascist imagery of that era involved with Richard's ascension to the throne and his heraldry, etc. What did y'all think of this? It was kind of like the normie version of Jarman's Edward II. Yeah. In that, like, I mean, what it's doing, like setting this in like an alternate history Britain where like, Britain is basically Nazi Germany is interesting as like a stylistic exercise and the little like ain't I a stinker flea bag asides to the camera are very playful. He's very like wink, wink, nudge, nudging us the whole time. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. And it's got yeah. kind of like that post Tarantino nineties thing going on, especially with all the bullets and the gunfire. Like it really is playing around with how you would present Shakespeare to a modern audience. 
I think that was kind of Ian McKellen's whole project with this because he wrote yeah. it himself, right? At least, like conceptually. And then as it goes on, the conceit wears itself a little thin. And then by the end, it's basically like a full on dad movie. Like the war stuff towards the end feels like it would fit alongside 65 on a daytime cable broadcast. Wow. Okay. Like a lot of the weirder touches of it are front loaded, I think. And it doesn't feel like Edward II, if we're comparing the two movies, we're like, that's an art film that mines a lot of continually surprising moments out of that anachronism. And Jarman like really pushes the concept of the project in every scene and like tries to say something, I think, about politics of the time that it was made. This one, I feel like you get the idea pretty quickly and there's a lot of like surprising moments as it plays out, but they kind of get like more and more spaced out as the movie goes along. And I, I don't want to say I lost interest by the end, but I kind of knew everything it had in its bag of tricks by the end. So I, I, I enjoyed it overall. It sounds like I'm like negative on it, but I don't think comparing these two films together does it many favors. Hmm. It kind of feels like the junk food version of Shakespeare. Like, you know, back in his day, Shakespeare was not taken very seriously. So, you know, in that way, I feel like this is like entirely an appropriate adaptation and he probably would have loved it. Minus, you know, there not being enough uh, dick jokes, but that's fine. He'd be like, I should have written one there. Um, but I, yeah, like it feels very like junk foodie, like here's an explosion and we're going to do a murder now. And so I, I thought it was fun. I, I'm not trying to say that to like throw some shade. McKellen is definitely trying to make Shakespeare cool again. Like, yeah, it's exactly. It's very much like and trying to get the audience succeeds. excited about that. Or do we, do we not yeah. agree about the extent to which he succeeds maybe? I mean, I think he succeeds. Like I could see like an English teacher showing this to like high schoolers and them being like, oh, I get it. I think it succeeds if the mission is to make like a mainstream exciting movie out of Shakespeare material without actually changing the words and like drawing focus to the wordplay and like making that stuff readable to a younger audience and a modern audience. Yeah. You know, like people don't even try to like break apart the language oh, anymore. They're yeah, just like, no, yeah, I can't yeah. read that. It's not even English to me. Right. The movie very much breaks down the actual meaning of each phrase gives it like emotional resonance to the characters. Like it treats it pretty straight as far mm -hmm. as like what's on the page, but also adds in a bunch of like nineties style and like playful rebelliousness as well. And I think even compared to like Boz Lerman doing this with like Romeo plus Juliet, I think it's even more mainstream and normalizing than that. That movie has weird choices in it that are very off putting and like kind of throw off the experiment so it's not all just like the same conceit the whole time i feel like this one's very committed to like one idea of how to update this material i mean i i, I guess but i don't i don't find that to be to the film's detriment i guess i don't think it's to its detriment it's just like i'm trying to like i guess pinpoint what kind of movie it is right because it's definitely not edward the <laughs> second they're like two completely different beasts and you know, yeah. I it does does not seem to be using the play to comment on the contemporary political environment in which the film was released at all. Like not even a little bit. Yeah, they could have even like used the uh Hitler stuff to throw bricks at Thatcherism. I was gonna say. They even removed like the race war aspect of 
Hitler's reign, you know, like it really doesn't commit to that stuff beyond the iconography, which is like in your face, very triumph of the will. Right propaganda looking yeah down to like reviewing the footage of the coronation and everything else Mm -hmm. like it's very direct but again i think that it's not trying to like obviously uh edward ii was making a contemporary political statement and so is richard iii even though it's only in the sense that everything is political it's not nearly as clear or as explicit if if it's even present at all But I do think that it, like, you know, articulates this narrative in a way that is much clearer to an audience and in a way that, like, does make it come alive, like, in a way that makes this play seem like, because this is not, you know, Richard III, it's not Romeo and Juliet. It's not The Merchant of Venice, and it's not Julius Caesar, and it's not Hamlet or Macbeth. It's not a famous one. It's perhaps even less famous than, than Edward II. Because Edward II was more frequently performed and more widely performed, whereas this one, despite containing many of the turns of phrase that like were lifted from Shakespeare, like My Kingdom for a Horse, and I think that uh, the Oxford English Dictionary refers to this play as the first reference to a hedgehog, <laughs> you know, it's still not one that is widely performed, widely known, or widely read. And one of the biggest problems with trying to get young readers or students of really any age interested in Shakespeare is because they are not meant to be read. Like they're not supposed to be read as if they were prose. And because of that, we have entire generations of students who think that like Shakespeare is worthless or boring or not interesting because they've been forced to sit in a classroom and read something that is intended to be performed. It would be like if you were taking, you know, a film class and you had to read the script of blast from the past instead of watching the movie like it's a completely absurd way to try and teach that as a text so for this to be so captivating where i remember a lot of people having problems with the witch or the vivich as you know as we call it around here because they do speak in sort of that um colonial middle english that if you don't get kind of accustomed to it you know, and settle into it, then you're not really understanding what's happening the whole time. Yeah, I had a lot of people in my life that was like, I could not understand that movie without subtitles. And I was like, I don't, I don't share that sentiment. But yeah, it's hard to follow if you don't follow the language for sure. And I do feel like this movie gives you a chance to kind of ease into it. Yeah. Because it kind of starts off light on dialogue. And then... Right dialogue that is there like so they they really do a good job of like presenting it and emoting it and really like showing what it means i think right. to the point where it's like by the end of the movie they're speaking in a way that's wholly unfamiliar and you know scripted but you can get it right yeah they really make a meal out of every dialogue exchange yeah. that like really slows down so that you focus on the meaning of what's being said more so than the words that are being said. And I'm picturing right now the scene in the morgue. Yes. I was hoping that was what you were about to say. (laughs) That one's very powerful. Yeah. So like Richard's just murdered uh, the King before him, which I believe was Edward or is it one before Edward? Should we, we didn't do a plot summary at all for this. Does it matter? (laughs) Okay. uh, Go ahead. You've got cliff notes out there. You can like speed read through that. Uh, so he's just murdered a king and he's hitting on the king's widow in the morgue in front of the king's dead body. And 
she spits in his face because it's a very inopportune time to be hit on. And he says, never come poison from a sweeter place. And she says, never hung poison on a fouler toad. And it's basically like she's spitting in his face with every word after that. Like when she says toad, it's like she's spitting again, you know? Mm-hmm. And I believe he's called a toad at least two or three more times as the movie goes oh, along, yes. which is a great insult because he is kind of a toad uh, and a boar, actually kind of literally as the movie goes along, he becomes monstrous, but the, the sort of venomous back and forth between those two actors in that scene is really intense and really like hateful and evil. And like, yeah, it, it makes the words come alive, which I feel like was the entire project of what Ian McKellen wanted to do here. Also, yeah. I feel like if you were to try to get someone who didn't know the term to understand foreshadowing, they really do a good job of playing the foreshadowing up, especially like in that scene in particular where she was saying, whoever did this, I hope that their wives live in never ending sorrow or whatever. And so, you know, like as soon as he comes in the room, you're like, oh, no. Yeah, she didn't know she was going to be one of those wives, oh, unfortunately. No. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that Kristen Scott Thomas is fantastic in this. Hell she's yeah. it's not she's not yeah. the king's widow. She's the like prince's widow, just for oh, the P dance before they you know type up and tell us you know every little thing that we said that was incorrect. She is fantastic in that scene. She is really giving him the invective, and then later when she is like you know putting on a show for him while also working with all the ladies of the court to undermine him. I really enjoyed her performance in this. And uh, Annette Benning too, I really appreciated that like, yeah. they chose to uh, demonstrate whatever the Royals uh, guys was, that his uh, relationship with a commoner was represented by him marrying an American. <laughs> yes. I do want to say now that we're naming actors too, uh, this is one of those movies like Gosford Park where like, all 10 British actors are in it. Yes. I was going to say Maggie Smith is in yeah. there. Uh, also Carson from because Down Abbey and Jim Broadbent and so anyone else from the name. Because Maggie Smith is supposed to be Ian McCullen's mother, but like they're basically the same age. Yeah. And I just thought that was like the weirdest choice. She has been ancient my entire life. Yeah. But yeah, it's just like a, you know, all the familiar faces you'd expect to see in a British film. And I'm sure all of these people have done if not this Shakespeare play, enough Shakespeare to know the rhythms and the performance of like how to like, you know, really commit to the bit where you're not just like reciting. Yeah. It was so British, in fact, that I paused the movie halfway through and made a cup of tea because uh, it seemed like the right thing to do. You know, one of the things I really enjoyed was when they have sort of the jazz band dance at the beginning, the song is a Marlowe sonnet, the Come That's Lay hilarious. With Me and Be My Love. That's like a Kit Marlowe sonnet. So um, that also, you know, has that connection to Edward II. And also, that movie was mm-hmm. very gay. But this one is mm, a little. Right? Yeah. There's definitely yeah. something little, going on. Some like, Tyrell loves him. Yes. Tyrell is devoted to his king in, like, more ways than one. The sassy yeah. asides to the camera are pretty campy as well. Oh, yes. Uh, there's also a lot of lingering on Robert Downey Jr.'s body while he's getting a blowjob. That's like the most anyone's oh, eroticized yeah. in the film, even though it ends terribly. He definitely, yeah, is treated entirely like a, a piece of meat there. But yeah, I don't, I don't think you can cast Ian McKellen in a Shakespeare thing or have him write it and have this be like what seems like a really pet project. Like, I don't know that much about it, but 
have him so involved and not have it be a little bit gay. Yeah, I don't know what else we could have ever expected. Yeah. It does turn into like basically Patton in the last five minutes though, right? Like, I was ready to take a nap. <laughs> you know, I also got very tired toward the end of it. I can't, <laughs> yeah. I can't deny that that was the case. For me, I have been assuming and will continue to mostly assume it was because of the lateness of the hour and it was the middle of the week. But I, I did sort of get a little bit bored, I guess, of, of the constant action. And it certainly had a horrible, like, last last 20 oh frames. Oh, my God. Um, Terrible ending. Yeah. Terrible. I really would have preferred if it just cut from, like, the push and not showed him falling. That was genuinely one of the worst, like, like in a movie where, like, there aren't any special effects, really. There's a lot of, like, practical effects, but there's nothing, like, you know, computer-generated or projected or anything like that was other than that. Yeah. And it's truly awful. And, you know, it's like it's like having a discordant note as on the very last track of your album. It just leaves such a bad taste in a movie that I otherwise like really, really enjoyed. Like it had the aesthetic of there was about to be like a new metal needle drop. <laughs> I would have liked it more. Boo. Yeah, like that is what it looked I like sold it for me. me. Boo. I do kind of like it in theory that there's another like weird stylistic swerve at the end. Cause in the very opening scene, the monarch who is murdered is uh, killed in their home or like in their study where they're working and a tank bursts through the wall in a very calm moment. And it's like this like surreal intrusion on this like domestic yes. scene. And there's a lot of like gas mask breathing that like overtakes the soundtrack. And then the title yeah. of the film is spelled out in bullets. Yeah. Very like fun, cool, dreamlike opening to this movie. Also, that weird little like Jurassic Park nod with the the wine glass rumbling. Right. Yeah, which is very very much like '90s mainstream filmmaking stuff. Um, yeah. But but at least it has like a surreal like wash to it. And yeah. then later on in the film, Robert Downey Jr. getting um, impaled during a blowjob was like surprising, like something out of a Friday the Thirteenth movie. Yeah. Uh, and then there's another scene later on where Richard snarls at a child after he is uh, knocked yes. to the ground. And then later, you know, someone is dreaming about the incident and sees him snarl again as an Isle of Dr. Moreau, like wild boar creature. I love that. practical effects. Oh, it's great. It's so yeah, that was great. good. I'm just saying those touches kind of like drift away once it becomes like a full on war film in the final act. And like, Maybe that bad CGI in the final note, like, does not age well or look great or feel good. But I at least like that they added one more weird touch towards the end. Because I was kind of, like, losing the, like, sense of playfulness that happened earlier in the film. Like, it kind of just drops that entirely in the third act. I, I don't know. There's something about him, like, holding a child ransom and threatening to cut his head off that's just so high camp to me in, the, <laughs> yeah. like, in yeah. those final moments. And then, like... The way that the train moves and then it's, it's, I don't think that it's a one or tracking shot, but at many times it feels like it. And there's something about all of those like troops by the trains that feels very stagey to me. So even though I, I think it probably was shot outside, it's shot as if to evoke the idea that it's happening on a soundstage. Like it looks very small and cramped. Not like you would expect in something, you know, contemporary-ish like Saving Private Ryan, where it's like very realistic. It's all very like 
stagey and uh, and that contributes to some of the enjoyment factor for me because it feels like they're almost moving the background scenery and doing like a long a lot of like long shots that feel very much like they're on a stage um and they're having to find a way to use that limited space cleverly that is part of what makes those elements more you know i wasn't as bored during them because i was interested in like the geometry of what i was watching it does have an artificial like old school feel to it Mm -hmm. i'll I'll give you that i don't know i I might just be pushing this movie to be something it's not and maybe like even be a worse film like if it was a little too playful and like going on different tangents all the time it it might have lost the core project of it which is basically just like an ian mckellen showcase and in his mind showcasing the eternal power of shakespeare Because he is so good. I mean, he's always good, but he's so great. Yeah, this is <laughs> this is really impressive. This might be one of his best performances, just as much screen time as he gets and as like different tones as he gets to play as the movie goes along. Because even though he's lying a lot, he is like doing these like sincere, mournful moments before he turns to the camera and winks at us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he gets to do a lot of different things here. And I think, you know, what I'm asking for is more weird stuff. <laughs> to break up the sort of like war movie plotting towards the end. And I'm also asking for more like political commentary, which probably isn't necessary because, you know, the work speaks for itself. Like, yeah, that's, that is not an element of this adaptation. Like not even a little bit. Right. Yeah, you're right. And you don't have to like draw a direct line to Thatcher or whatever to make like a mad King in power relevant. Like, Mm -hmm. I was picturing watching this, like how many terrible Richard the Third Trump allegory plays were like made out there oh, in the God. past few years. And I, I imagine there were at least a few and I'm sure they're all incredibly dated by now. So I don't know. I'm asking the movie to be uh, against its own interest, maybe probably because I went into it thinking about Edward the second. So vividly it's confusion. It's killing us. <laughs> yeah. I, no, I enjoyed this a lot. Like I said, it felt like Good, junk food Shakespeare, and I love that. Anything that gets people to see Shakespeare is fun is good in my book. Um, here in Portland, every summer, um, it just started up again. We have original practice Shakespeare, so it's people who perform it like it would have been performed like in the Elizabethan era. So like people just get scrolls for their lines and like parts change and stuff and it's a lot of fun and you know i think either updating it or going back to how it was i mean other than like it's not just all men they do like a lot of gender swapping in the roles and i think in august um if you're in portland in august they're doing like a non-binary version of something i don't remember what but yeah it's really cool um Probably Midsummer Night's Dream, right? Yeah, that's the first thing that I thought <laughs> that would of be as well. So good. Or uh, Taming of the Shrew. Oh yeah. Those oh would be yeah. Good. I think that it would be really fascinating to do the Tempest that way, but there's not many yeah. characters, so. Uh, you know, the last adaptation I saw of the Tempest was directed by Derek Jarman. Oh. Really? <laughs> yeah. It's not as good as Edward II, uh, but it's pretty good. <laughs> but is it as good as Richard III? Uh, actually, no, this is a better movie than Jarman's The Tempest. Okay, sure. good to know. So it is The Tempest that uh, original practice Shakespeare is doing for the, oh. gentle, the Gentle Limbs show, is what they're calling it. How lovely. 
Um, I guess it goes without saying, but I guess we will say it just because if we don't, someone in the comments will be like, you forgot to mention um, Tyrion Lannister. The character of Tyrion Lannister is based on uh, Richard III, both historically and within the context of this play. Mm-hmm. There, are you happy? I was also happy? thinking a lot about uh, Secession. Uh, Logan Roy specifically makes his employees play a game called Bore on the Floor, uh, which has to be a direct nod to this play. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. But yeah, you don't have to try too hard to make this material irrelevant to you know any period in art or in politics, which I guess was Ian McKellen's entire point in the first place. Yeah, I guess so. Next week on the show, we are going to be talking about the summer heat, probably because it's the only thing anyone in the Gulf South can think about right now because the ground is melting under us. Uh, this was Brittany's topic, and she picked a movie called Picnic from the 1950s. Uh, we're going to be watching that, which apparently is a little trashy and a little classy. A nice mix that we try to maintain here. And I think a nice mix that uh, I think Richard III hits as well. But yeah, we're going to be talking about the sweatiest summer movies we could think of. Just like real heat wave cinema. Do the right thing. I almost picked that one, but it felt a little too on the nose. Like that's the yeah, first that place my mind blend. went to. Yeah, yeah. everybody thinks of. When they turn-